The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Life in Exile, a study of the book of 1 Peter. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, for this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly, For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, that is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. My name is Justin. If you are just joining us, um, I am one of the pastors here, the lead pastor at Sacred City Church. We welcome you. Uh, We are going through the book of 1 Peter, verse by verse. We've been doing that for the last few months. Um, And I think it's, I mean, it's been beneficial for me. I've heard it's been beneficial for some of you. Um, And this morning, well, it's going to be something. Let's just say that. All right. You've already heard heard, heard the scripture here. So I'm going to pray because I need the Holy Spirit's help. And we're going to get into it this morning. Father, we come before you. And we just ask for your help. I ask for your help. I ask that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords that um, I'm standing before a text that has a lot of mystery to it, a lot of wonder in it, uh, very confusing, um, goes against the grain of our our humanity, goes against the grain of our nature. And uh, I ask for your help. Help me explain it. Help me teach it. Help us understand it. Um, And most importantly, Lord, help us believe it and embrace it, that our life may take the shape of Jesus Christ as you've called us to do. So I pray this for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, Uh, we are starting in verse 18 today. We're going to finish up the chapter. And last week in our study of 1 Peter, Uh, We came to a new section where Peter began to teach his readers that their conversion to Christianity was going to change the way they lived in the city. Now, I want you to hear that. Um, It's kind of common for many to believe that what you believe doesn't actually affect the way that you live. And that is an anti-biblical understanding of faith and understanding of belief. The Bible would say, unless your faith changes the way you live, you do not have faith, you do not believe. When you believe something to be true, it will change the way that you live. And so Peter is teaching the the, uh, believers in 1 Peter here that when they become Christians, it's going to change the way they live in their city, right? It's gonna change that. They had been, he's already told us, they've been chosen by God. They've been forgiven of all their sins through Jesus. They've been given new spiritual life 
through the Holy Spirit. And then that Holy Spirit, that same Spirit that sent Jesus and the same Spirit that was sent by the Father, that same Spirit is now sending them back into their city as missionaries to show the world what it looks like to live close to God as a member of the church. So there are these Christians spread out through their cities that are meant to show the watching world what God, who God is and what God looks like. They were to be a sacred city within their cities, a people devoted to God in the midst of a culture that was devoted to other things. And the key words that act as kind of headers to this section are be subject to, be subject to. Last week, Peter said, be subject to every human institution and be subject to the government. And this week, he's going to say, be subject to, we'll see. Now, last week, when he was talking about being subject to the government, he's specifically saying, you need to submit to the government. You're not to be anarchists, overthrowing governments. We're called to worship God alone and to honor everyone in our lives, and that includes our governmental leaders. And today, we're looking at another human institution, and that is the relationship. Now, here it is. I'm going to break it down for you. That the relationship between an employee and employer. And what we're going to learn is that the gospel of Jesus should change the way we work and relate to the authority in our workplaces. And I might, might as well just start off by telling you, you are not going to like what I have to say this morning. Let me be more transparent. We are not going to like what God says to us through Peter this morning. We aren't going to like it because what we're going to learn is at odds with much of our American spirit. And so you might have a visceral reaction to Peter's commands today. And if you do, I'm going to tell you, that's okay, right? It's the Holy Spirit showing you an area that you need to grow in, all right? And that's why we repent of our sins every week. and That's why we confess our sins and put our faith back in Jesus Christ because every week we should be, uh, as we study the word of God, we should be seeing areas of our life that do not line up with God's ways and God's word and they're out of line with how we were built as human beings, all right? And so it's okay if you get a little angry about it, right? I'll be honest, I get a little angry when I read it, right? It's, it's, gonna, be, it's gonna be a little difficult. Let me just say it clearly. This week, we're going to learn how the gospel calls us and empowers us to submit to a bad boss who is causing you severe emotional pain. Oh, just saying it sounds wrong. Let me say it again. We're going to learn how the gospel calls us and empowers us to submit ourselves to a bad boss who is causing you severe emotional pain. Now let's get into the text. Uh, I better prove that from the scriptures this morning. Uh, our text, chapter two, verse 18, right away, Peter says, servants. Now it's, uh, to, it's something to note that this is, even though it says servants, and last week he said servants, and the word he used last week was, 
the Greek word doulos in the, in the Greek, and it means slave. He's using a different word here. And so when he's saying servant, he's not, it doesn't have the same connotation as it did last week. Now, it's hard for us to understand. Anytime we hear the word slave, we think of what happened in the, in the American slave trade, in the British slave trade. And so we kind of have to reprogram our thinking. That's not what uh, we're talking about here. That's not the Bible condones here. This is contractual workers. Okay, this is, con- there was no labor union. There was no, you know, you didn't have an HR department back then. Uh, you, you had, you, you kind of sold yourself uh, into servitude. Um, either you got, you know, you were indebted or that was just what you did. 25% of the Greco-Roman world were slaves or were servants. That's, that's how they made their living, right? And what this is, in, this isn't like just menial workers out in the field. This term for servants here is really the term for household workers. And under the umbrella of this term, you've got tutors, you've got cooks, right? You've got maids, you've got teachers, you even have physicians. And so Peter is talking, when he's saying servants, he's talking about servants and masters. To put it in our, our, our day and age vernacular, he's saying employee and employer, And it's interesting, he doesn't really address employers because the majority of the church were lower class citizens. There was very small, uh, uh, many scholars say there was only 10% of a middle class, right? There was uh, 1% upper class, 10% middle class, and everyone else in society was lower class, right? There were the workers, the laborers, uh, the landowners made up a very small percent. So Peter is speaking to those who are commonly mistreated, employees that don't have any rights. He's not addressing uh, employers in this text. Other scripture does uh, address that. And what he's going to address this morning is how our Christian faith should make us better employees. Just as God has called us to honor everyone last week, he tells us to submit ourselves to our employers with all respect. We are to respect and honor those in authority over us because God has put them in authority over us. But as soon as I say that, I know our reaction, I know our response, and we want to say, because we go through our head of the employers that we've had, right? And we say, but what about, and we could fill in the blank there, right? What about a, a guy who's emotionally manipulative, What about a woman who's vindictive over us? What about, you know, what about an employer who is cruel? And so look what Peter says. Servants, be subject to your masters. I'm just going to say servant or employees, be subject to your employers with all respect. Look, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, unjust. So Peter goes on and tells us that yes, indeed, there are two types of bosses, okay? Or maybe let's say there is a spectrum, right? At one end, you have a good and gentle employer. And at the other end, you have an unjust, and the word for that means crooked, a crooked employer. Now, everyone in this room who's of working age, probably, has been under the leadership of someone who falls under probably both sides of that spectrum. We've had good bosses and we've had bad bosses. We've had gentle teachers and we've had cruel and mean teachers. 
We've had good coaches and we've had bad coaches that were meaner than a snake, right? And most of us respond well to the good and we respond poorly to the bad. We feel if you're ever under an unjust leader or an unjust coach or a crooked employer, you somehow naturally feel that it is your right to rebel from an unjust leader. We get, especially as Americans, right? That's why we're Americans, right? We've rebelled from what we considered an unjust leader. And we said, we'll just create our own country, right? We, 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 like we, re- we rebel, we, we, right? We, never, I'm not gonna get into that, right? We feel that it is our right down in our DNA when we have an unjust leader to get bitter at them. We get angry at them. We feel that it's good of us to retaliate against them. We stop putting forth our best effort and we think that we now have the right to begin to slander them and speak against them. Hear this, why are you getting a bad grade in that class? My teacher is a jerk. Why aren't you starting on the team? My coach is an idiot. Why didn't you get the promotion at work? My boss is a moron and never notices anything good that I do. And oftentimes, if you talk to the leader of these organizations or the leader of these groups, and you ask the person, why isn't this person getting promoted or or getting a good grade or or making the team? The leader is going to say something like, they've got a bad attitude. They don't respond well to my leadership. Peter says this. Let's keep reading. Actually, let's just go to verse 20 first. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. Now, what's he saying right there? He's saying there are two ways that we can suffer under leadership, right? First, we can suffer justly. That means basically we get what's coming to us, right? We, the Bible says it like this in other places. We reap what we sow. You break a rule at work, and you get fired for it. This week, a high-level executive at Apple, I don't know if you saw this, but he was one of the engineers working on the iPhone 10, and he let his teenage daughter come in and check out the new phone before it was released, and she made a little video of it, and she had like two subscribers on YouTube, and she put it up on YouTube, and the thing went viral. Apple called her, asked her to take it down, she took it down, dad comes into work, dad gets fired. Why? He broke a rule. That's just suffering right? He broke a rule. What knew he wasn't supposed to do it? He got fired for it. We gossip and then we get found out and our relationships, maybe with our coworkers, begin to break down. Well, that's just suffering. We're reaping what we sowed. We break the law and we get a ticket and we go to jail. Well, that's just suffering, right? Or what's like this? We got a lot of students in here. We put off a project, right? We delay it. We procrastinate, push it down the line. And then all of a sudden it's due Friday. It's due two days. And we've got anxiety and we've got stress and we've got to drink an iced coffee at 11 p.m. and pull an all-nighter, right? 
Well, that is just suffering, right? We deserve it. We've done it to ourselves. But then there's this other category that Peter talks about. Peter straight up says, like, if you sin and you get beat for it, it's your own fault, right? Beating, fired, discipline, docked pay, lose your sales, whatever it is. That's what he said. It's just. Now, most of us, we don't like that, but most of us, we go, you get pulled over, you're going 78 or something, and you're like, oh, I, I, I deserve it. I deserve it. You're mad, right? You got caught, right? But you know you deserve it, so there's not much you can really do about it. But then there's this other level of suffering. And Peter calls it unjust suffering. And unjust suffering is when you suffer for doing something good. And now look, the word that Peter uses here um, in 17, or I mean, I'm sorry, in verse 19, he says this, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, look, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Now, what is sorrows? Sorrows, that word means emotional pain. That's what it means. So we're not talking about an abusive, like a physically abusive boss or your life is in danger or something. We're talking about a boss or an employer or a coach or a teacher who's causing you emotional anxiety, emotional stress. Uh, maybe they're just not kind and it's unjust. You're doing good things and you're getting bad negative responses from your employer, from your leader. Now, Peter calls this unjust suffering. And unjust suffering is, again, when you're suffering for doing good. Maybe you refuse to do something unethical at work. And your boss punishes you for it. You try to move closer and move towards someone who's hurting. You try to love someone and they reject you or they blame you. That causes pain. Maybe you share your story with someone Right? You share what Christ has done in you and how God is redeeming you. And that person maybe uses some of the information that you shared with them uh, to hurt you. Now, unjust suffering is some of the most painful kinds of suffering. It's some of the, one of the most painful forms of suffering because deep down, we all know it's not right. This doesn't seem right. I was trying to do the right thing. I was trying to love that person. I was trying to be a good employee and I'm getting punished for it. I'm getting, I'm receiving bad things for it. And many times we can get confused and kind of discombobulated in our mind. And we might think, why is God mad at me? Is God punishing me for something? How could God let this happen? I'm trying to do the right thing and I'm receiving pain and emotional turmoil, maybe emotional abuse in response. Why in the world would I suffer for doing the right thing? Well, in one sense, that question is the question that this entire book of the Bible was written to answer. As these believers became Christians, right? As these people became Christians, all of a sudden they started getting kind of persecuted and marginalized and and receiving some negative input. And they started wondering, am I doing something wrong? 
that I'm experiencing this suffering? Is God mad at me? Am I disobeying? What's going on? And Peter writes this letter then. And he says this, you're doing the right thing. Now this is hard to hear. You are doing the right thing. You are doing the good thing and you get fired for it. You're doing the good thing. You're doing the most loving thing and someone makes fun of you and slanders you. And here in verse 21, Peter gives his answer to that question. Why? When I'm trying to be kind and I'm trying to be gracious and I'm trying to do the right thing, can I receive this kind of hurt in response? And I'm going to tell you, this answer goes down like 100-proof whiskey, okay? It's going to burn, right? Now, if you're into that, here it comes, okay? It's coming in hot. Verse 21. Look what he says. Can I just be honest with you? This is one of those verses in the Bible that I, I hate to say this. It's a little bit heretical for me to say this, but I could do without this verse, Okay? <laughs> I could do without it. I mean, I love the Bible. I love the word. It's all inspired. God gave it to us for our good. I, I knew, hope you all know that. But this one right here, nobody's going to like this. Look at 21. For to this, to what? To unjust suffering. For to this, you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Jesus suffered unjustly. And anyone who follows him, that's why Jesus said things like, Pick up your cross and follow me. He said, you must give up your life. You must lay down your life if you want your true life, your real life that's hidden in Christ, in God. You must do that. If you want to follow me, what is Peter saying here? Peter's saying, God, oh goodness, I hate saying this. God has called you to suffer unjustly like Jesus. Now, you can go, but I have never seen this book on Barnes and Noble's bestseller list, right? I see your best life now. Now, how do you put this scripture in that book, right? God calls you to health, wealth, and prosperity. God calls you to easy, breezy, comfortable Christianity. God calls you to move up the corporate ladder. God calls you to get ever-expanding square footage. God calls you to get a nicer vehicle every time you trade it in or every time you get a new one. God calls you to easy relationships. Now, all of those books, they make it on the bestseller, but this one where it's very clear, and he says, this is the will of God for you to suffer unjustly just like Jesus. We don't hear it. And so when unjust suffering comes into our life, we immediately question God. Something's wrong. I must have did something. Maybe I've sinned. Uh, maybe God's mad at me. Have I read my Bible enough? Did I go to church enough? Did I take communion wrong? Am I getting cursed? What's going on? Right? Why? Because we don't know how to suffer. We don't know that we're called into this walk, this discipleship relationship with Jesus that calls us to follow him 
into unjust suffering. Now, so Peter straight up says, you submit to a bad leader and you're going to experience suffering, emotional pain, and you do that because you've been called to it. It's the will of God for you to look like Jesus. But let me clarify something. We are all called to suffer. But that doesn't mean that this text is applicable in every situation, okay? In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7.21, Paul tells employees to get free of their wicked employers if at all, if it's at all possible is the word that he uses. If it's at all possible, get free of them. So that means if you have an emotionally unhealthy workplace and you can get a better job, then do it. You have the freedom to leave and find a better place to work. You don't have to suffer under every unhealthy and unjust leader. But the reality is, here's the reality. The only leaders available on planet earth are sinful leaders. That means every manager and every employer is capable of causing or creating an unhealthy and unjust work environment. And so many times we're going to have to learn how to suffer and stay put and suffer under an evil boss, suffer under an unjust leader. But how are we to do that? How are we to wake up every morning and to go into a job or go into a classroom, go into work every day, right? Go into the gym, go into a staff and sit under emotionally unhealthy, unjust suffering. How can we do it? Now, I'm gonna be honest. If you're not a Christian, I don't have an answer for you. I guess you can either do two, you have really two things you can do. You can suck it up, which you hear that a lot, right? Suck it up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, be a man, be a woman, be a lady boss, and just go to work, (laughs) right? You can do that, right? Or you can leave, right? You can go try to find something else. But if you're a Christian, Peter has good news for us. Bad news is everybody's going to suffer. We're going to suffer. We're called to it. The good news is Peter says that somehow the work that Jesus did on the cross has now empowered Christians. And I'm going to use a term that I need to clarify. To play the Christ. The work Jesus has done on the cross has now empowered us to play the Christ. Now I say that we're not the anointed one, right? We're not the Messiah, but we're called to mimic the one who is, mimic our Savior. And I get this term, play the Christ, because um, I've been uh, studying a lot of the reformers. If you don't know, uh, this in four days, whatever, the 30, on Halloween, uh, it's also Reformation Day, and it's the 500-year anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses, the door in Wittenberg caused Uh, a great stir. Let's just say that caused, we're here because of that. Let's just say that. And I've been studying that a lot. Uh, And I'm reading some biographies, reading a new biography of Luther right now. And uh, this term play the Christ, it it came to my mind as I was reading this text, because in 1555, uh, during the reign of of who we call Bloody Mary, uh, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, they were bishops in the Anglican church, and they were burned at the stake because they weren't Catholic. 
And Latimer's last words to Ridley were this. They were being let out and they were being choked and they were being strangled and then they were, they, were, they piled high the wood and they were be, being led to the stakes and they were going to be burned. And all of the people loved these two bishops. But the, the power switched, switched to the queen and so the queen was going to try to bring them back to a Catholic nation. And so they were burning these men at the stakes and everyone was saying, no, no, we love him. He's our bishop. We love him. And there's a lot, I mean, just think of the emotional turmoil, right? Your pastor is being led up to be literally burned alive for being a Christian, for wanting the Christian scriptures in the, vernac- in the English language, in the English vernacular, right? We didn't want to have to go to the priest who could read Latin to interpret for us the text of the Bible. And these men are going, being led up, and this is probably, this is going to be the day of their death, and this is what uh, Latimer said to Ridley. He said this, play the man, Master Ridley, for this day we shall light a candle which shall never fail in England. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, th- them being burned at the stake kind of, again, it reignited the Reformation, which eventually led to England being a Christian, going, being, being free of the Roman Catholic emperor the Roman emperor and what gave them this power. So I thought about this as he's going, as he's going to the stake and he says, play the man, play the man. What now is that the same thing as what I said earlier? Suck it up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. No, it's not. It's not. See what gave them the power to play the man? What gave them the power to suffer such gross and unjust persecution? even to the point of death. It's it's clear, it's right here in this text. Jesus. Jesus' life is meant. Now, let let me me just look. As you look in verse 21, I want you to see this word. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Look, leaving you an example. Now, that word example, the actual word is pattern. Christ, the pattern. And I grew up, my mom had a little sewing business for a while. She made dresses and she made all these things. And so I grew up with these little like uh, paper things, I don't even know, paper patterns around the house that you would lay a pattern over and you would cut out the shape of the dress or whatever it is that you're going to use. And that's how, that's that's what you'd use. Or another common example would be a stencil, right? You lay a stencil down and you use that stencil to trace something. And Peter is saying the life of Christ And the unjust suffering of Christ is meant to be the pattern of the Christian life. That our life is meant to take the shape of unjust suffering as Jesus' did. So that's what it means to kind of play the man, to play the Christ, to step into this role and embrace unjust suffering. Now, let me prove it here from the text. And before I do, let me just say, if this is true, if this is true, Christians should be the best employees in the city. We should be the best team members, right? We should be the best volunteers. We should be the hardest working, most honest and loyal, most dedicated and long-suffering people in the city, We should not be gripers and complainers. We should not be entitled. 
We should not be playing the victim. That's the opposite. Playing the victim is the opposite of playing the man or playing the Christ. Now, what Peter is saying is, I want you to hear this, Christians. You have a power in you. Through the gospel, by becoming born again, through the Holy Spirit, you have a power in you that enables you to suffer. We have, as Peter's going to say here, this grace from God. But how do you use it? If we have this power, how do we activate it? If you read, I encourage you to read some on the Reformation because it challenges me. I'm a pretty bold individual, but as I read it, and and they say recant or burn, and I hear of these people being drawn and quartered for believing the Bible should be accessible to every single man and woman, I thought, would I recant? Would I like, well, I didn't really, I mean, I can't, okay, I can see your point there. I'm a, I would, you know, I'd be tempted to do the recant in front of everybody else and then go back, right? Go back home. No, no, I was just joking. I have my fingers crossed behind my back, right? But these men, you know, Martin Luther, you know, under the threat of excommunication and death, John Huss had already been burned at the stake years before, for the same thing, and, and Luther had, had embraced some of his Huss's teachings, and Luther's standing there, and every, the people that can kill him are right around, they say, you know, recant, and he says, here I stand, I will not recant unless you can convince me from scripture that what I'm teaching is wrong. The boldness and the audacity, knowing that unjust suffering is coming his way. I might die for preaching or believing the word of God. Now that can cause some serious confusion in your mind. How could God allow this? Right? How? Now, So I ask myself, when I see that, how does a person endure unjust suffering well? How do they do it well? How do they do it right? Well, I think Peter teaches us right here. Look at verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. That's step one. How do you endure unjust suffering? Well, first off, you're mindful of, of God. Now, this is interesting. What does it mean to be mindful? It means to be conscious of God. One of the things that happens when you become a Christian is you are given the mind of Christ. And what's this, one of this thing, one of this realities of what this does is, is I go throughout my day mindful of God. I don't go through my day, well, what will people think of me or what do I want? I go through my day thinking, what would God want of me here? What would God ask of me here? I go through my day thinking, what has God done for me already in the gospel? This is one of the reasons that Christians historically start their day by reading the Bible, reading scripture, singing a hymn, praying, because we want to start our day being mindful of God. You can't just go through life and expect to live a Christian life if you're not practicing thinking, meditating on the gospel, meditating on God, thinking about what he's done and who he is. So the first step to enduring unjust suffering is just put your mind on God. Set your thoughts on things that are above. Think about God. Now, what's the second one? Verses 21, we kind of already saw it. 
For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. So I'm to think about God, be mindful of God when I'm embracing this unjust suffering, and then I'm to look at Jesus. Now, how did Jesus suffer well under unjust leadership? What is Jesus' example? Well, interestingly enough, Peter is the first one in the New Testament, other than Jesus himself, to pull, to connect Jesus with the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. And so Peter gives us a clear depiction of how Jesus suffered. And look what he says, verse 22. Jesus committed no sin. He didn't, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Okay, so right away, this is important for us understanding who Jesus was. Jesus wasn't being crucified because he broke the law. He wasn't being crucified because he did something wrong. Jesus was was being crucified because he did something right. He was dying because he was doing the good, right, loving thing to do. Jesus didn't lie. Who are you? Are you the Christ? He says, I am. He didn't lie about who he was. He didn't deceive. So many of us, we suffer because we do wrong things and bad things. That's not why Jesus suffered. Secondly, verse 23. When he was reviled, means made fun of, spit on, slandered, he did not, revile in return, right? Jesus didn't retaliate. When they pulled his beard out and they punched him in the face and they smashed a crown of thorns on him, he did not retaliate. He did not try to break free. If you remember, when Peter pulled his sword out and and took off one of the, the guard's ears, Jesus rebuked him and healed the man. Now, this is, this doesn't go well with us as Americans, right? That Jesus suffers unjustly and he doesn't retaliate. All right, keep going. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. But look at this. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's God. Now this is the thing that we, do, we can't do right? This is the thing we can't do in our flesh, that it's almost impossible for us that while we're suffering, we want to pull away from God and we want to say, God, how could you do this? How could you allow that? I've been living for you. I've been giving my money to the church. I'm going to a missional community. I'm sharing my faith with people. I'm trying to do the right thing at work. And now I'm suffering unjustly. This isn't fair. I'm pushing away from you because you, you broke our deal. What do you mean you broke our deal? Many of us secretly have this deal with God that if I follow you, you've got to make my life comfortable. If I follow you, you've got to make my life. You keep suffering away from me. Jesus, listen, God never made that deal with you. And Jesus here, he doesn't respond that way. When he's being crucified, the nails are going into his hand. He's not saying you broke your deal. It's not going well for me right? He does. He did say he was honest. He was in his humanity. He was honest. He said, take this cup from me if you can. Father, you've forsaken me, but not my will. Your will be done. And he looked at the people that were killing me. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And here Peter says, he continued to entrust himself to the one who judges justly. Father, you know what's right. You will 
Vengeance belongs to the Lord. You will vindicate me and you will vindicate my name. And of course, God did by raising Jesus from the dead. Keep going. Verse 24. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree. Now this is if you want a big, big term here, this is called penal substitutionary atonement, okay? This is Jesus suffering vicariously for us. Him taking our sins into himself, taking our sins to the cross, killing them there, satisfying the wrath of God, ensuring us God's happiness for eternity, and giving us new life through the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus is doing on the cross right now. He says, on the tree. Why? So that we might die to sin. As Christ was killed, my sin has been killed. My flesh has been killed. My old life is dead. And that we might live to righteousness. We have a new power to live. The power of the Holy Spirit is in us. The gospel has changed us. He's given us new hearts, new identities. And now I can live a new way. And he says this, by his wounds, you've been healed. Through Christ's death, all of our sin has been wiped away. All of our sicknesses have been paid for. When Christ comes back and we're resurrected or, or, or when we die and go to be with Christ, we'll have brand new, real, earthly, physical bodies in heaven with him. See, Peter says, this is what it looks like to suffer well, to play the Christ. Jesus exchanged places with us. When we deserved the wrath, Jesus took the fall for us. This should inform the way we think and we suffer under unjust leaders. What does it mean to think about God? Think about what he's done. And then I look to Jesus. Look what Jesus has done for me when I deserved wrath and I deserved hell. Jesus took it for me. He absorbed it in my place. And so I can suffer under this kind of unjust leadership. So we, one, we're mindful of God. Two, we look to the example. And then three, we follow the example of Jesus. This is what it means. Sometimes we talk about gospeling yourself, preaching the gospel to yourself. And what it means is while I'm suffering, my first response isn't, I don't deserve this. You know what I should do? You know what I can do? You know what I... And we start scheming and manipulating and figuring out ways to, to get around it. Instead, we, are, we go to God. What has God done? What is the way of Christ? What did Jesus do for me? Holy Spirit, you live in me. You've given me a new heart. I can respond to this suffering in a different way. And I don't know if you saw this. You know, you might say, why? What's the point? If God becomes man and lives and dies and resurrects and gives us new life, why aren't we in heaven already? What's the point? Why do we still have to suffer unjustly? I got three reasons. One, because it pleases God by glorifying Jesus. It pleases God by shining a light on Jesus. Did you catch the repeating word in this text, gracious? It says this, look at verse 19. 
For this is a gracious thing. The word thing is actually not in the Greek. It says this is grace, charis. This is grace. What's grace? When mindful of God, one endures suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and beaten for it, you endure? But look, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this again is charis, is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Your goodness is displaying true graciousness to the world when you're suffering unjustly. And what is grace? Grace is good when evil is deserved. It's love when bitterness is expected. It's peace when wrath should be on the way. In other words, it is the totally opposite of what people expect in our normal ways of operating. And here we stumble upon something at the very core or the forefront of Peter's mind. In 1 Peter 5.12, Peter writes this, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring, listen, that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. In other words, the true grace of God is revealed in the world when Christians who are treated unjustly nevertheless act honorably and good. They play the man or play the woman. This is what the world needs to see from us. This is what our city needs to see from us. Our submission is not only within the will of God, it's a gracious thing in the sight of God. In submission, you please God because you shine a light on the work of Jesus. I'm acting like Christ. I'm being unjustly treated and I'm, I'm, I'm still being obedient. I'm not sinning just like Jesus did. Now, this is interesting. John Piper says of this principle here, I quote, this is not merely a rule to be kept, but a miracle to be experienced and a grace to be received. As I've been studying these reformers and as many of them you know, gave up their lives so that we could have the Bible and we could be free to worship God by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, looking to scripture alone, for our authority, I keep asking, what gave them this power? What gave them this power? And each of them talk about receiving a grace for the moment of their final persecution or their, or their martyrdom. That when the time comes, God will give them a grace that will sustain them in the moment. A power within them to enable them to suffer well while doing good. Now listen, so first off, why do we suffer like this? One, it, it pleases God by shining a light on Jesus. The second thing, as, as we heard in verse 15 already, our good conduct is supposed to put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And so when we are good and we suffer well under unjust leadership, it silences our critics. As I was reading this week, uh, when John Calvin, who's another one of the reformers, um, that came after, uh, kind of took Luther's baton and, and, and pushed it through. Uh, when he died, and, and you know, obviously the Catholic Church hated these guys, uh, Pope Pius IV said this about Calvin when he died. The strength of that heretic was that money never had any charm for him. Now, if you know anything about the Renaissance, 
You know, everybody started getting wealthy and the, and, the, and the church was corrupt basically through money. Popes were living lavish lifestyles. Some of them had six or seven mistresses and six or seven illegitimate children and they were living high. I mean, they were, they were and, the, and the people were very impoverished. And so in come these reformers, right, who are doing the good thing and they're being persecuted for it. And on his death, the Pope says, the strength of that heretic was that money never had any charm for him. I love it. This is like a backhanded compliment. He was saying, John Calvin couldn't be bought. He wasn't for sale. He knew how to suffer well and still do good. And many of us in our job, that's a question we, you still need to ask. Can you be bought? Can you be bought? If your employer asks you to fudge some numbers, if he asks you to use a, a you know, kind of a... Um, uh, immoral selling practice. Are you going to do it? There's a lot of debate going on right now in the technology community. Uh, the, the, the guy who invented the like button, the like button for Facebook, you know, he's left Facebook, he's gotten off Facebook, he's left all social media because in his kind of memoir and in some of his things he's releasing right now, he talked about how psychologists have, they're using psychology and the, the, the understanding of addiction to build technology. And they're saying, we know how humans' brains are wired and we can, how can we make these apps and how can we make this technology, how can we make these games addictive to sell money or to sell money, to sell stuff, to make money? And this guy stands up and he says, you know what? That's immoral. I think it's unethical. Even though he created the like button, which is one of the key things. We get a little dopamine burst every time we see a like, somebody liked our status, right? He, he's pushing away. He said, hold on, I think this, we need to, we need to, we need to research this. We need to look into this. This might be unethical. <clears throat> now listen, do, can we play the man? Can we play the woman? Do we have this power when our pocketbook and our bank account is at stake? I'm gonna say the, the world is watching us. Our bosses, our coworkers, our kids, our neighbors. I'm gonna say this. And none of them are very impressed with our success. What can impress them, or maybe just confuse them and intrigue them, is when we continue to do good and be kind and gracious while we are suffering unjustly. Maybe what might impress them more than getting the promotion is when you miss out on the promotion for some unjust reason and you continue working hard and you refuse to be cynical and you continue to entrust yourself to God while suffering unjust, unjustly emotional pain in your workplace. And that's why in verse 12, he says, Peter says, we want people may, they may see our good deeds and glorify God in the day of his visitation. As Alex told us, he's talking about people being converted to Jesus. People meeting Jesus. People being born again. Now, how many of us have been told that it is going to be our shining lives, our brilliance that will draw people to Jesus? It's going to be our great marriages and our obedient kids. It's going to be our successful careers. And listen, maybe that does happen sometimes. I have no doubt that it does. But I'll just say it this way. Listen, that's not the way of Christ. That is not meant to be normal for the Christian. The normal path of the Christian 
is the path of Jesus, which is the road of suffering unjustly. And just as the suffering of Jesus brought us an eternal weight of glory, just maybe it's going to be our ability to suffer well and keep a good and godly constitution in the midst of great emotional pain that will be the thing that will spark a revival in our city. And that's why we're here. It's one of the reasons we're worshiping this morning. We want to see God move in our city. We want our neighbors to come to Christ. We want our family members to come to Christ. We want our neighbors to realize that this earth, there's nothing in this earth that's good enough to live for, that our our eternity, our eternal weight of glory is what we're made for, to walk with God, to know God. And maybe that's not going to come through our continual rise and success, maybe that's going to come. Maybe they're going to see the sufficiency of Jesus through how we suffer when we're unjustly treated. Peter says, for this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, I pray that we would, even right now, be mindful of God. We would look the example of Jesus, and we would, we would embrace the example of Jesus. Now listen, here's the key. We don't earn our righteousness with God by suffering well, right? No, no, no. We've been given a righteousness. We've been given by grace the power to do this well, and now he tells us, go show people what Jesus looks like. Go play the Christ. Go play the man. Go play the woman. Lay down your rights. This is crazy, right? Be mistreated, and keep a smile on your face knowing that this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. When people see you suffering well unjustly, that gives them a little picture of Jesus. They say, what gave you the power to not retaliate there? You can quote this verse. Jesus suffered unjustly in my place for my sins. He died my death on the cross, and now I get to live his new life by the power of the Holy Spirit in me. It's not in me. It's not my willpower. It's not my strength. I didn't read a book about it. The Spirit is doing this in me. I pray that we would embrace this this morning. We would play the Christ in our workplaces this week. Father, I thank you for your grace. Every word in this Bible has been divinely inspired. You inspired the authors to write it. It's good, true, pure, beautiful, right. It's profitable for us. God, we have been so influenced by our society, by our American values, by our, even just our fleshly desire, just our normal human tendency to push away from suffering and to stand up for our rights, that it is really difficult for us to really believe and practice this text in front of us. And we're thankful that it's not up to us, but Jesus suffered unjustly, perfectly in our place for our sins. And I pray that our mind would think on that and the, the reality of the gospel, the reality of the work Jesus has done on the cross would now empower us to work well in our city, to serve the least of these in our city, to start nonprofits, to make 
impacts to not, even we're not getting accolades and we're not getting praises and maybe even people condemn us and say that we have ulterior motives and maybe they, they make fun of us or whatever it is that we would have a power that goes beyond this world, the supernatural power of Christ to enable us to continue doing good even when we're suffering unjustly. I pray that you would do this in us and through us this week, Father. And as we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded that Jesus went all the way for us. He suffered unjustly to the point of death, crucifixion. His body was broken. His blood was shed. And that body gives us new life. And that blood forgives us of all of our sins. And this morning we come and we partake of it. And Jesus, we believe you are spiritually present here with us in the elements. And as, uh, as we come towards this table as your people, we come for more of you. And we ask you to meet our deepest needs. You know, we know we've been given everything we need for life and godliness. We come to your table this morning. We want to take you and eat you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.